All right, so we are here live in Cincinnati at IFCA 2023 with doctors Corey Marsh and James Fazio. Thank you guys for joining us. Thank you for having us. We're yes. glad to be here. It's a pleasure to be here with you guys. Yep. We're here to talk about your book, Discovering Dispensationalism, subtitle, Tracing the Development of Dispensational Thought from the 1st to the 21st Century. And I guess just to lead off, because a lot of our listeners, I'm sure, have heard of you guys or heard you on other podcasts like Peter Gaiman's podcast or, or somewhere else. So I wanted to try to ask somewhat unique questions. <laughs> to see how you do. Yeah. Well, um, what is... What would you say is the main misconception that this book seeks to correct when it comes to the general view of dispensationalism through church history? Let me take that one because James is excellent on the more technical questions. I can do the the softball ones like that. (laughs) There's no doubt that what this contributes is to miss, you know, just to to demystify, uh, to myth bust that popular error that dispensationalism was originated or sourced in the mind of John Nelson Darby. Um, So many popular works, even good works, on the history of dispensationalism, generally written by critics of, uh, they're going to source dispensational thought in the 19th century in the Anglo-Irish clergyman John Nelson Darby. Um, They might have some interesting insights, uh, historical observations, they generally do. Um, there's a couple on my mind right now that have just come out recently that do that very thing. But they don't predate anything within dispensationalism before the 19th century. What this book does, as you read the subtitle, Jeremy, it's right there. Tracing the development of dispensational thought from the 1st to the 21st century. So we're going way before John Nelson Darby. We're going all the way to the New Testament, the, the, the first century world, uh, which in the book we call ancient Mediterranean thought. Um, and we're going to look at uh, what were what was germane to what would later be called dispensational ideas, uh, whether it's a separation between church and Israel, a literal hermeneutic, uh, what the very word oikonomia means, which is the word dispensation in Greek or economy. Uh, following that through through the patristic era, the church fathers, the first second uh, first and second centuries after the New Testament, into the Nicene era, third and four, third to fifth centuries. Uh, into the medieval period, going all the way from the 5th century to the 14th century, into what we call vintage Europe. Uh, So dispensational thought is now going around the globe from the Mediterranean to vintage Europe. Um, And so you're in the Middle Middle Ages at that point, into what we call the pre-Darby era. (laughs) And uh, yeah, oh, excuse me, the Reformation. How can you skip the Reformation, right? So the Reformation would follow the the medieval period. I've always called the Reformation the pre-Darby era. Yeah, that's what that's (laughs) great. (laughs) <laughs> Everything right, right now is just yeah, exactly what's this. Let's call it all pre-Darby era. It's a good way to, to separate it. Um, but anyways, so the Reformation then into the pre-Darby era, and then even as it now tr- dispensational thought then crosses the Atlantic into American dispensationalism, takes on a new breed, if you will, but still retaining some of the same ideas. And you see this splintering, a sort of branching off of different uh, ideas within different forms of American dispensationalism through the American Bible Conference movement into what we call mid-axe dispensationalism and even the golden era of dispensationalism, which is really well known as the scholastic era of Dallas Theological Seminary during the, you know, the mid-20th century, and even into today, progressive dispensationalism. So that's not that's a long answer, but really what this hammers on is showing as uh, the, the, the esteemed historian, British historian David Bevington says on the front cover, he endorsed our book and said, elements of dispensationalism, this book proves that, were present in every era before John Nelson Darby. Now, 
dispensationalism as a like a tag word put onto a theology is that's relatively new in the grand scheme of church history. So as you're going back and you're tracing the development of dispensational thought, or as Bebbington says here, dispensational teaching, you, you can't just pull up a, a PDF of an old document or whatever and search dispensationalism or dispensation mm-hmm. because they weren't using that kind of language, at least in the way that we've used it the last 100 years or 200 years. So as you're going all the way back to the first century, what are some of the key words you're looking for or the way that things were taught that reflect dispensational thought since it isn't what it is today? Mm-hmm. Um, well, so first you have to say what identifies dispensationalism today? What is it known for? What are its primary characteristics? Um, you know, get it, drilling down a little bit more than like Ryrie's Sinquanon because they think that's a bit too broad and it's very general and it doesn't really define dispensationalism. You've got to look at the uh, viewing history, the, the successive dispensational arrangement of history, the how God has dealt with his people in different ways at different times. Um, you have to look at things like the, a futurist interpretation of prophecy, the expectation of a personal return of the Lord that will precede a millennial reign of Christ, a restoration of Israel. Um, all of those ideas are essential to dispensationalism. Um, and as you look at the core concepts that we recognize as dispensational today, you see that all of these have been present throughout all of church history from the, from the first century to the 21st. Now, Darby's influence, of course, ends up being a, a revision of those ideas to the point and, you know, a packaging of those ideas in a systematized way that, that creates cohesion and really brings a name to a system a name that had been around since, um, you know, uh, you see uh, uh, Augustine used the term dispensations, the former dispensation, and you know, and so how are they using the term? They don't have all of the same ideas connected to it. When when Augustine's using it, he doesn't have all of the the, the, the same features. Um, even the idea of of the, the, the uh, a septarian or seven sequence of seven arrangement of history is something which traces back to the earliest eras of the church. So that's where you say, okay, there's something here. It's, it, it doesn't take the same form, but you know, you could say the same about amillennialism. If you look at the 1700s, that word won't appear anywhere in, in literature. It doesn't mean that the idea wasn't present. It just means the tag that defines the idea and how we come to understand it was not present throughout church history, but certainly the concept, yes. That does make me wonder now, too. Uh, sorry, Ken, I got another Go question. Uh, in the context of all of church history here, as you're considering 2,000 years of thought and writing, is there a better word today to call our theology than dispensationalism? Is there a better term out there? Could we do better than that, or is it too late? Has that, has that horse left the barn? <laughs> it's, you know, it's, I'm thinking of a panel discussion that happened earlier earlier here today at IFCA. James was a part of it. And this may have been you that even said this, I believe, um, talking about the idea of fundamentalism. Uh, is that a good word, or has it become a byword, or even a, a bad word to use because all the baggage attached to it? As dispensationalists, we, we think about these things amongst ourselves all the time. We were recently at a Council on Dispensational Hermeneutics uh, meeting, and that was one of the things that, that brought up. You brought this up on your panel discussion, James. Um, should we be calling dispensationalism something else? 
a year before that, or a few years before that, we were at a, a conference, another council on dispensational hermeneutics, and it was, is literal hermeneutics, is that, is that just, should we redefine that? Should we relabel that? As literal hermeneutics has a lot of baggage to it. But in the end of the day, and this is what James brought up earlier on the panel discussion, which I really appreciate, is that it's the ideas that are disliked, not, not the label. So even if you change the label, there's going to be critics that have a problem with it, and there are going to be people that misuse the label. Is there baggage attached to the word dispensationalism? Absolutely. And I think there's baggage attached to any theological system that's used inappropriately, if the label's used inappropriately, and whether it's covenantalism, covenant theology, or dispensationalism. And I don't know how many times people call them, refer to themselves as Calvinists, and you actually break that down, what it means, and how they ascribe to Calvinism. And they have a little tiny nugget of Calvinistic ideas, but the entire system they're not adopting. Same with Arminianism. So it can be misused. Dispensationalism, in that sense, is no different. It's, mus it's misused, misunderstood all the time. But, and I would say this, we should not change the word because of that. And here's a reason why. And we make this case in the final chapter. Dispensationalism is a biblical theology. And where that starts is being inductive. The very word is biblical. Now, that's an English word. We'll go back to the King James where it's at. But it, what it does is it translates the Greek word oikonomia which is where we would get our English word economy. So perhaps maybe we can call it economyism, but that comes with its own baggage, yeah. right? At, at its root level, it's a biblical word. The idea most certainly is biblical as well. So I, I don't think there's any gains if we were to change the label. Um, we're kind of stuck with it. So now what we do is defend it and give a positive case for what we mean by it. That's good. With something like this where you're tracing the history of the thought and you're, and you're there's a lot that's there. How did it come to be where we are today, where probably the most common pejorative against dispensationalism is, ah, you know, that's a novel doctrine, that's not, it's new. The, the fact that there is so much evidence for this being, for there being dispensational thought for centuries and centuries, going all the way back to the first century, how did we get to this place of, like, was it just ignored? Is it just misrepresented? where that is a pejorative that is stuck on dispensationalism being new. It's really one of two pejoratives. I think if you were to look at and Google dispensationalism uh, errors or uh, uh, critiques, mm -hmm. one of them will be novelty. The second one, equally as wrong, but still nevertheless maintained, is dispensationalism teaches multiple ways of salvation. Yeah. It doesn't matter how many times, how clearly, what kind of a voice of an authority can affirm that these things aren't so when people have their, you know, straw man, they're going to beat it. And, and I think that's kind of what we have is um, it's, it's, there's a criticism of the idea and when there is a hostility or an orientation that is antagonistic toward an idea, you'll kind of grab a hold of whatever you can to, to pejorative to, to, to throw at it. And I think in both cases, that's what you have. I mean, you know, a claim of novelty is it's, it's um, you know, a few centuries newer on the scene than, than, you know, the doctrine of justification by faith articulated through Luther. You know, I mean, yeah. the Protestant Reformation, uh, uh, the Westminster Confession. I mean, you know, you say uh, these are all products of the Reformation. Well, so, is covenant theology 
yeah. as a system right. is barely, is hardly, in the, in the grand scheme of history, it's barely even older than dispensationalism right. as a system. Right. 170 so. years at most. Right, yeah. Right. yeah. Well, and it doesn't take much imagination to put yourself in the shoes of a Roman Catholic at the time mm-hmm. of the, seven, or the uh, yeah, 17th century saying, well, this is brand new. Why would we even pay attention right. to it? I mean, right. it's, it's a ridiculous argument. Mm-hmm. We, go, we go back to the word, even to piggyback on what James said, and even the prior question, the very word, us being referred to as dispensationalists, it's so that that way of referring to our particular brand of theology is very new. The ideas aren't, but the, ta- the, the, the title was given to us, I believe, by Philip Morrow in the early 20th century, mm-hmm. 1927 or 28 around there, if my dates are correct. And it was by a critic, a former adherent of the system who had left the system, and then it became a pejorative term. He coined that, much like the word fundamentalist. Uh, as is often said, we, we take that word meaning going back to the fundamentals, those you know those dozen volumes that were published between 1910 and 1915, I believe, of the fundamentals of the faith. Well, that's true to a point. The actual label fundamentalist came from the liberals that were preaching, shall the fundamentalist win? Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. the labels that are given to us oftentimes are, are given pejoratively, but there's a good heritage in that. The word Christian is used three times in the New Testament, and all three times from what I can remember, uh, it's it's not in a positive sense, you know, perhaps maybe by Peter, but there's always suffering involved in it, right? Um, in Acts, you see, they were called at Antioch. They were first called Christians, you know, and, and even the governor, I believe Felix, I might be getting my characters wrong in Acts. Now, should you persuade me to become a Christian? You know, it's kind of like a, a bad word, if you will. So dispensationalism, in that sense, if it's a bad word used against us, well, we have a good we have a good heritage because that was even used coined uh, when the word Christian was coined was used in a bad way, as was fundamentalist and now dispensationalist. But you know what? We run with it. We can redeem that title and we defend it because there's actually nothing wrong in the label itself because the ideas are as ancient as the New Testament itself. Yeah, I love that idea of just leaning in. Of just you know no actually you know what that is, this is exactly what we are right. this is what we believe and then but defining it as biblically as right. we can to where you you mentioned before yes there's baggage associated with some of these terminologies and things but that doesn't mean there's baggage like you said there's baggage associated with everything we're defining this this way and we're running with it mm-hmm. that's so, right yeah yeah we're, we're we're at that independent fundamental churches of America Inc right right I see it's not independent. <laughs> conservative evangelical holding to the fundamentals of the faith Inc. I mean you, yeah. get, you, you get a label and you go with it and you and you you lean into it like you said yeah. and try to clarify the best you can about what we mean by it now one of the arguments that gets leveled against dispensationalist is that we have this pre-trib rapture idea and no one no Christian through history ever thought we were going to escape tribulation and you know you dispensationalists you just think we're you know you're gonna miss out on all the persecution well go talk to the christians in china you know none none of them are pre-trib and none of the christians throughout history were pre-trib either because they were getting persecuted can you answer that argument so a lot of that gets down to the and this is where darby's contribution is is very helpful in refining the ideas um the relationship of the tribulation and the appearance of the antichrist and obviously John was talking about Christians experiencing persecution in his day and age, right? Jesus said, you know, you will, you will always be persecuted. You'll be persecuted for my namesake. I mean, in this age, in this world, we will suffer persecution. Um, we will have to endure tribulation. Now, the, fi- the refinement of the idea to distinguish the seven-year tribulation, the anticipated seven years, and the great tribulation, the second half of that seven years, and 
the appearance of the Antichrist in relation to the seven years, the Daniel 70 weeks and all of these things, which we kind of take for granted now and now we just, we talk about these things, but the, this is the refinement of, of ideas that, that Darby really helped articulate. However, throughout the church history, you can certainly see uh, references to the appearance of Antichrist and the removal of Christians before he appears. So there's an anticipation, yes, there's tribulation right now. Nobody ever thinks that we would miss out on tribulation in general in the present age, but a specific and you know and and how that works now we, we can we can talk about whether it's pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, you know, I mean all these different ideas that we have that go along with that. But the parsing out of these particulars are much more uh, engaged in, in common parlance. However, throughout church history, the anticipation of the appearance of Antichrist preceding a, a specific tribulation period for Israel, a judgment, and the restoration of Israel, all of those elements are present throughout church history. Could you name some people or groups that ha- that revealed that sort of thought? In, in in the early church, we have it at the writings of Justin Martyr. We in the in the apostolic era, we have um, y- you know the uh, appearance of uh, the anticipation of, of Barnabas, who's expecting um, not just a sequence of periods, but a final sequence, which would be the millennium, being preceded by. Um, um, the, the, the re- removal of, of the Christians, in other words, the transference of God's dealings from the Christians to Israel. We see it in, um, in the Middle Ages. We have Joachim of Fior. Um, we have kind of throughout, throughout history... Um, Brother Dulcino. Pre, yeah, Brother Dulcino. In, um, in the uh, pre-Darby era, we have it going back almost the earliest of the French uh, philosopher Pierre Poiret was one who, who was, you know, really right around the time of the formation in the, of um, covenant theology, Pierre Poiret had a systematic, um, probably wrote more specifically on, on the sequence of dispensations numbering seven than, um, that, than, you know, just about anyone, including Darby. I mean, Darby certainly wrote more, but not specifically on dispensations and a, a systematic theology. Pierre Poiret's element, uh, the, the way he arranged it, included a, a, a rapture of the church prior to the appearance of a physical, literal antichrist to the earth, um, a wrath that would come, and a restoration of Israel for a thousand years on earth. So, I mean, all of these elements, you know, without, without the, the specific linking which Darby provided of the um, of, of the fulfillment of the seventy weeks prophecy, the seventieth week of Daniel's prophecy, the the you know, I mean Darby's unique contribution, if we were to call it that, is his uh, presentation of the church as a parenthesis, and that parenthesis paradigm of the church is 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 what we kind of take for granted. A lot of dispensationalists talk about that. That kind of language wasn't used before. The parenthesis means that what, what's going on with the church is happening within Israel's dispensation. Okay. And that is unique. And that's, we almost take that for granted. I mean, a lot of times we'll hear people talk about the parenthesis, the church being a parenthesis. In other words, it's not just Israel followed by church, followed by millennium, you know, these three ages. But 
it is in Israel's 70 weeks prophecy period, 490 years, 483 years in, right? We have the coming of Christ, and all of a sudden, following the, the, the descent of the Spirit on the church, we have the beginning of a church which must end before Israel's dispensation can resolve. And so then the seven years being a return to that dispensation, if you will, or within the midst of Israel's dispensation, you have the church. In his language, which I think probably very few people are aware of this, in his language, the church is not a dispensation. It's not a dispensation. It's actually embedded within Israel's dispensation. Or, and then he would also perceive beyond that a dispensation of the nations or the Gentiles. So he's got a dispensation of Israel, a dispensation of the nations, which has to do with Babylon, the image, the, 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 so, you know, the sequence of nations, not the church. And the church is like, to use another word than parenthesis, it's like an interruption. Well, doesn't that lead to the critique, too, that some people have that dispensationalists believe that we're plan B? We're God's plan B. You know, Jesus came for Israel, and they said no, so he's left with us. You know, the, the <laughs> like you're drafting a, a, I don't know, dodgeball team. We're the runts left, you know, <laughs> at the end, and God's stuck with us. Is that what Darby meant by parenthesis? And if not, what did he mean? Yeah. No, I, so the, the idea would be simply prophetically speaking, yeah, there's no anticipation. The prophets didn't anticipate what God is doing, which is why the term Paul uses throughout the New Testament. We're, we're very familiar with the idea of the mystery. The church is the mystery previously unforeseen. The prophets didn't know it. It wasn't, it wasn't um, anticipated in a way that we could have seen. It, what we have is the prophets speaking of God's dealing with Israel, both in his first coming and in his second coming, without any forecasting of a 2,000-year interruption. But, uh, but here's what else is not anticipated. That even the existence of that interruption, when the prophets speak of Christ's coming, many times they speak of the first coming. I, I, Isaiah 61 comes to mind, right? Isaiah 61, which Jesus read in the synagogue in Luke 4, and he's reading... You know, the, the very words of the prophet stopping in the middle of verse 2 because it talks about, you know, proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord, which is what he came to do. But if, if he had continued the verse, and as you continue on in the prophecy, it goes right into the day, the day of God's wrath. I mean, you know, and then and, and everything else which, which moves seamlessly had he not stopped there. I mean, if you were to simply read Isaiah 61, it would seamlessly blend from Christ's first coming to his second coming in the same verse, verse 2. And so, you know, the, the point is this wasn't, the, there was no reason for God to forecast to Israel, to Isaiah, what he was going to do with the nations. It doesn't mean God didn't have a plan for the nations. I mean, that, that's, that's where Daniel's prophecy comes in, right? I mean, that's where, where we could say Nebuchadnezzar's prophecy and all that God gave through, through the nations to the nations concerning the future that was not Israel's future. So that even in Daniel's 70-week prophecy, when God's giving a prophecy to Daniel, it does not take into account that in the middle of Daniel's timeline, there will be an interruption. So, yeah, the church is an interruption in Israel. You could say, you know, I, this, this interruption of what God's doing with Israel in, in Christ's coming, there's an interruption right there. It's just God is dealing with people, you might say, on a need-to-know basis, and that's his prerogative. I mean, that's part of God's sovereignty that we recognize. If I can, just add something really quick to this. And 
take it more of a theological angle as opposed to a chronological with this parenthesis idea. Jeremy, what you brought up, I've, I've had that, I've encountered that multiple times. You dispensationalists look at the church as this leftover idea. You know, it's a, the parenthesis is an afterthought. Plan B, as you said. And yet, theologically, if you understand dispensational thought, not, and, and the critique continues to go, do you just sort of idolatrize Israel? Right. Some even say we have an Israel-centric hermeneutic. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Not realizing, and, and there's nothing that uh, that piggybacks on that. All you care about is eschatology, and your head is so high in the clouds looking for a pre-trib rapture that you're no, of no earthly good. Well, when it comes down to dispensational thought, is that we actually highly exalt ecclesiology. It is the doctrine of the church that is so unique and so wonderful in this particular era or this, uh, this age that we are in, in human history because now you have believing Jew and believing Gentile together in a body that was a mystery before, as Paul then said, it's now been revealed. It was kept secret for in previous generation. Now it's been revealed. Now you have something new that is established um, that have a direct, uh, a direct relationship with God through the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit that never happened with Israel before. They would have the Spirit, say, within the tabernacle, uh, with the fire, you know, a, a pillar of uh, cloud during the day or fire at night. Uh, so it's like a corporate indwelling, but an individual permanent indwelling, that is something that needs to be explained. That was not in previous generations. Um, and then you have that within the church. So we're actually, as Darby was, his dispensational ideas flew out of his idea, his ecclesiology. You know, So that, that thought that we're, we're all about eschatology and the church at this point is just an afterthought, you know, the way we look at it, absolutely not. It is... God is ruling the world in his divine economy right now through the church, which is made up of both believing Jewish person and believing Gentile with the direct personal indwelling that's permanent of the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit to Christ himself. That has to be explained. So it's radically uh, church-centered, if you will, if what the, the, the theological system of dispensationalism comes back down to Christ and into the church for this particular era that we're at. It's remarkable. Yeah, I think the, you know, that, that charge that often gets leveled, well, you think, you know, that uh, the church is the plan B and, you know, that whole idea. I think it really betrays an aspect of, I don't know, maybe just a, like a small-minded aspect of, is God free to do things in the world the way he intends to do things? Can God have multiple purposes and accomplish those through whatever means that he desires to do that? And... I, I think dispensationalism has a has an answer for that, as we see the way God has has ordered the world and is engaging with the world. Man, I don't know. I, I, don't, can, how, I don't know how many times. So I've been in academic conferences speaking on multiple peoples of God, and people's minds are blown, thinking, "How can you do that to God? There's only one people of God." And you think, "God, what's so what's so controversial about that? Like God is pretty big. He can have multiple programs. He can have multiple peoples." In fact, in a revelation says that his peoples, he will dwell with his peoples. It's a plural in the Greek. This should be actually, this should be not controversial in any sense. It should be kind of common sense when you read the Bible a specific, consistent way. Because you're going to, right off the bat, you're going to deal with, okay, if you're going to say that it is only the church, what are we doing with people before Israel and before the church? What are you doing with those, those people that were from Adam and Eve and all, on, mm-hmm. all the way up to the call of Abraham? Um, you know, the, the, the Noah family, Noahic family, all, all these people that existed that believed in God, you can't neatly put them in the church and you can't neatly put them in Israel. Right. What do you do with them? 
uh, you know, so th this idea that there can be multiple peoples of God shouldn't be that mind-blowing because we do serve a big God who can have multiple programs as he does with the animal kingdom, as he does with angels, he does with human beings throughout history. Um, this shouldn't be that <laughs> that crazy of a thought, right? And then I think of Isaiah 19 uh, with Egypt, Egypt Syria. And Syria and, and Israel, right. Yeah, and uh, Zechariah 14 talks about Egypt and Israel also. And we're... We're not Israelites, Egyptians, or Assyrians. Right, so, right, right. <laughs> throw Americans in there, too. Um, and the only way to make that one people of God, of course, goes everything boils down to hermeneutics, yeah. is to spiritualize that, to allegorize it, to do something with it, to make it want, make it mean something different than the distinctions that the author, that Isaiah, clearly meant by that. Yes. That's the only way you can justify it. I mean, this means just one corporate entity or spiritual entity. To do that would be to violate its grammatical and historical context. Well, to wrap up an idea on Darby before we, uh, you know, finish this without talking about him a little more, you know, he gets his own chapter in the book, I see, and mm -hmm. over 40 pages, rightly so, uh, because it, any conversation about dispensationalism has to include him. The, all, all roads kind of lead back to Darby. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering, you know, as you guys were rattling off some sources through church history, mm -hmm. what was it about Darby, his person, or maybe the time he lived in, that made him the guy? If, if, if there were other guys... Uh, that, that Frenchman you were referencing who even systematized theology. Why, why don't we know his name? Why do we know Darby's name? Right. Well, you know... Well, my question to you, Jeremy, is why don't you know Because <laughs> I haven't read your book yet. <laughs> so here's the thing. Um, interestingly enough, the chapter on Darby is written by a non-dispensationalist. Hmm. He's a, just a Darby biographer. Wow. And, and he's, he's written, you know, independently decades ago. Um, he's written on Darby, and he continues to write on Darby to this day. He was a former Plymouth brother and came from that background. And so um, he had a, a bit of a kind of a distant uh, appreciation for the man, for the ministry, but wanted to kind of demythologize. And so he wrote the chapter um, and, and can still observe the very distinctions that um, contributions that Darby made uh, uh, be, because Darby certainly made made strides. Being a, a brilliant theologian, single-handedly translating the Old and New Testaments from the original Hebrew and Greek with his knowledge of Latin into English, we have a Darby translation, into German, they have a Darby translation, and into French. Uh, um, this isn't this isn't for the faint of heart, right? This isn't something that uh, somebody who's just kind of dabbles in theological issues can do. But besides that, his engagement um, uh, with with the early church fathers, I think the reason why uh, he made such an impact is because he understood the Greek concept of oikonomia. And that's what I go into in the in the very first chapter in the New Testament era is I'm demonstrating how dispensation comes out of the New Testament, you know, like you said, the idea of dispensationalism and a system of theology, I get, I get it, that's recent, but, but we didn't invent the word, we didn't coin, you know, the concept, it's actually lifted straight from the Greek history and culture um, as they understood it, having received it themselves from the pages of the Old Testament. I mean, it is, the, the concept of stewardship, which is what oikonomia is, is Jesus spoke more on stewards, the good steward, the wicked steward, being good stewards, than he spoke about covenants. Hmm. How much did Jesus speak about covenants? He spoke about stewards and stewardship hmm. all the time. So the point is, it's a biblical concept that's 
laden, it's throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, and it is one which Darby understood being not only proficient in the classical languages of Greek and, and Latin, but in, able to read the Xenophon and, and, and those in the Greek ancient world, even distant from, from theological issues, an understanding of the Greek concept of oikonomia. And then to be able to apply that, as Paul used the term in the Greek context, to himself theologically. So Darby was able to see how this emerges from Scripture as a theological theme. Paul referring to himself as a theological steward, a steward of the mysteries of God, a steward who was appointed by God for the Gentiles. And so seeing now that he's not just creating something, he's actually exegeting something from the pages of the New Testament and drawing connections to what God is doing and how God has dealt with man, what he expects from us. That, so. that chapter on Darby, just to piggyback a little bit on, on James, or sort of zoom out a little bit, the guy who wrote that that chapter, Max Wermchuk, has written probably the definitive biography on John Nelson Darby elsewhere. It's published through SES Press now. Um, he contributed a chapter in this book, and he is currently writing a 600-page critical biography on John Nelson Darby's earliest life, or wow. earlier life, called Becoming JND. <laughs> it's remarkable because we'll get some pushbacks and critiques. Well, this is written by dispensationalists to dispensationalists. You're not convincing anybody of anything. Well, it just so happens to be, you know, Darby, I call him in the book the boogeyman. You know, everybody knows his name, but nobody ever really has read him or know what he actually taught, right? The guy who contributed the chapter on Darby is is one of the few guys in our book, if not the only book uh, guy, uh, James may correct me on that. He might be the only one who's not a dispensationalist, writing on the most famous quote-unquote dispensationalist. And this book, and this excuse me, this chapter, just like his definitive biography called J.M. Darby, and the one that's coming out, Max is able to. I mean, he lives in Darby archives, and he has gotten first ever non-published material from the extended Darby family to this day. So his contribution in this book, there's a reason why it's merited to have a chapter just for John Nelson Darby, 40-something pages like you said, and we had to slim it down to edit this thing. Um, it is, it's quite stunning what uh, the observations, the historical data that Waramchuk's able to come up with, and has, he's really contributed a lot in, for Americans in general and in Germany, because he writes in German uh, for other articles on Nelson, John Nelson Darby, keeping his legacy alive, not being a, he's not a hagiographer, meaning he's just writing a biography on him because he loves him so much and exalting Darby to the highest heavens. He's very critical in places, um, as he should be, because Darby can be sort of a contentious fellow, right? Um, so he is not, he is, he's, he's honest with the historical data, um, and yet he, he's able to come up with and find, discover, rediscover material that's never been published from primary sources about John Nelson Darby. So we're very proud to have that particular chapter in our book. Okay, I'm going to set you guys up for this, and I want you to both tee off on this one, all right? You've got a, a chapter in here, the contributor was uh, Dr. Tommy Ice on the golden years of dispensationalism, 1900 to 1980. And that is probably what most people are familiar with when it comes to dispensationalism, the rise of the seminaries like Dallas and Grace, and the authors, uh, you know, Chafer onward, uh, thinking about all these men who've been so influential, J. Vernon McGee and Ryrie and Walvoord and Warren Wiersbe and all these guys. 
two things. Does this imply that we are now post-Golden Age? <laughs> and what does that mean? And two, uh, with the books and uh, podcasts and videos that are coming out that are basically asserting that from a more reformed view, like the rise and fall of dispensationalism by Hummel and other things that are coming out, how do you respond to those who say, yes, in fact, we are in a post-golden age, it's the fall of dispensationalism, we're going downhill, and shots fired at you guys, there are no scholars in dispensationalism that are respected. (laughs) You know, that's what Hummel will say and others. Uh, there's the setup. You guys take it wherever you want to go with, with that. Uh, if you don't mind, Jim, yeah. I'll start with this. This, you actually, it's a, it's a little bit of a, a, a soft spot there because, uh, well, I don't know if that's the right word, but a little sensitive spot. So James and I, as we're both editors of this particular book, when it came to that, that title, The Golden Years, The Golden Era, um, I, I think I probably came up with that there. James gave a little pushback. The yeah. same reason that you just said. How, what, who's to say what's the golden years, the golden there? What's the criteria? What does that imply? Right. What does that imply? Exactly. The way that I thought of it. So I'll take the full blame for this. Not the credit, but the blame. <laughs> um, I wanted to keep that in the book, and he was and he was gracious enough to let, just let her fly with it, um, to, let, to let me fly with it. was kind of because, just like dispensationalism, if we can't change the word for something else. We've already discussed that. It's known. Okay. So what we can do is best explain it. The golden years, the golden era, that is what our cr- critics will look at dispensationalism. Specifically, that just came out, you referenced Daniel Hummel's new book, The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism, which is a wonderful book, actually. There's a lot of good history in that. He's going to look at scholastic, academic golden years of dispensationalism coming out in that mid-20th century. Um, and he's not alone. So a lot of, not just critics, but a lot of people within that movement itself, that era, would think the same thing. We tasked uh, Tommy Ice, or we invited him to write on that particular era because he was a student at DTS during this time, primary, uh, 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 primary representation. Um, and he would agree that this was the golden era of what we know even today of J. Dwight Pentecost, Alvin McLean, John Walvoord, you know, uh, Charles Ryrie, going back even further, uh, a little previous back to Lewis Berry Chafer. I mean, it, there's no way of getting around it. These were giants in an academic. They took a popular level grassroots movement that was being spread through the Bible conference movement, wonderfully so, so everybody can read the Bible based on a consistent little hermeneutic, and now started publishing academic scholarly works. And that was the golden era of uh, traditional dispensational thought becoming published. Um, I think we would all kind of agree to that because we are in an era now to use Daniel Hummel's term when he, it's a little misleading in a sensational title, the rise and fall of dispensationalism. <laughs> what he means is popular level dispensationalism, the marketing behind it, fringe level, the, 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 the novels, the movie franchise, the entertainment industry. I mean, it's pretty, it's quite embarrassing. That has overshadowed any scholastic endeavors in dispensationalism to the point that we don't even know you exist. And I've had a personal conversations with him over this very thing. Just to clarify, you're talking the Hal Lindsey's, the John Haggies, the Left Behind movie type Correct. stuff. Okay. Correct. I mean, I mean, just uh, my wife and I are on our way to IFCA. We, we we took a long drive here from California. Just the other night on the TV was the Nicolas Cage, uh, you know, uh-huh. Left Behind, and, uh, and we say the final chapter, or maybe it was the first chapter. There's a parenthetical remark: Please, filmmakers, please stop spinning off <laughs> Left Behind movies. Right? You're doing more damage than good. Because it is, to Hummel's point, overshadowing 
the real scholastic academic work that does continue to happen. Unfortunately, we're not given a fair hearing in the academic societies, in the prestigious monograph um, uh, venues, peer-reviewed journals, um, because when you think dispensationalism now, you think that popular fanfare, right? Um, however, we are still here. We are doing our academic work, and, and Hummel, just to end on this, if you read his final chapter, I think, he actually mentions our school, Southern California Seminary, is one of the few pockets of still uh, teaching and producing traditional dispensational scholarship, which was a nice little head nod to us. Um, but there should certainly be more, because we are, we are around. We're not, certainly not alone at SCS. There's excellent journals out there, whether it's Detroit Baptist Seminary Journal, Journal of Ministry Theology, Master Seminary Journal still doing this, Bibliotheca Sacra, the oldest journal in the country, is still producing some excellent dispensational scholarship. Um, it is out there. Um, of course, SCS Press is producing their parts of academic dispensational thought. Um, we just need to get a, a, a wider, perhaps, hearing on the academic side and push back on that popular level fringe dispensationalism because it has overshadowed our works a bit. Or we get Nick Cage to do a video of going up to Idaho to make his Christian utopia from a post-mill perspective. There you go. And then everybody can make fun of post-millennialism now. <laughs> I'm all in favor of that. I would see that movie. I would see that movie a dozen times. Okay, uh, Dr. Fozzi, I want to hear your thoughts on where do we go from here if this is, if we had a golden age, what's next? Yeah, well, you know, and I... I um, it, I think it's certainly the 20th century is the era of dispensational dominance, right? I mean, it certainly was the loudest voice. It had the biggest impact, not just in in, in the churches across America, but even in, in, in public policy. I mean, it, it influenced a, a major international um, uh, uh, policy in some cases. So, I mean, there's absolutely a sense in which dispensationalism probably peaked in terms of its inf global influence. Um, you know, and that's fine. I mean, we, we don't need that. That's not what, what we were called to do. It probably, you know, kind of like the seed that mushroomed into a great tree and the nest and the birds came and flocked and nested in it. I mean, we don't, we don't need that. That's not what we're called to do. But um, at the same time, you know, history is usually characterized by thesis, antithesis, followed by a synthesis. And I think that you've got these reactions, whether it's covenant theology, dispensational theology, you know, this sort of um, um, tit-for-tat, you know, then in the next thing, and, and, and now we're the post-dispensational theology, and, and, and whatever comes next, and, and uh, you know, whether it be a post-millennialism, I mean, imagine, could you imagine the world in, that we're living in and a resurgence of post I mean, it's just, you know, we... That's whatever it is. It's it's okay because it too shall pass. Mm -hmm. And you know, all we're called to do is to respect God's word, to read it, to understand it, and to apply it in our lives. And um, you know, it, when it comes to a, 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 a hermeneutical approach that takes the scripture at face value and a futurist interpretation of prophecy. You know, put whatever label you want to on that and our, on our eschatological expectations and how we live our lives today as a result of, of the you know, New Testament and, and our understanding of the church's relationship to Israel. And all we're called to do is to walk faithfully to that. And yes, you know, right, I mean, of us, we need to teach it, we need to write on it, we need to promote those ideas, and the Lord will take care of the rest.
I'm curious, you both are excellent scholars, and as you... Thank you. You're, Let's yeah, end on that. We'll just end it right there. <laughs> Even with that, and you're as well-researched as you are, as you're compiling this and you're you know, reading through the works and doing the editing process, was there any detail or fact that was surprising to you that you did not previously know as you're compiling all the essays? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there. You th even as dispensationalists, you, you think you got a pretty good handle on your system of theology. There's always some wonderful little nuggets of surprise. Um, so yes, great question. As editors, you get a bird's eye view of all the details what our contributors are, are sending to us. So maybe the most surprising, and this sounds, I don't know if this sounds you know dull or anything, but the most surprising is that the ideas we hold to today as dispensationalists <laughs> really have this incredible ancient pedigree. Mm. So things like, I got into a little little debate on Twitter. Who doesn't, right? <laughs> I got roped into one I didn't want to be on. And this guy was vitriolic that no one held to a distinction <laughs> between church and Israel before, I think he gave, I mean, he was nice enough to give up to the 17th or 18th century. At least he didn't go to the 19th century. So absolutely, if you go back to the patristics, there was a place that God had a place for both the church and Israel. They were still working out what that may have been, what that looks like, but they held to reading this, understanding this literally, that we can't subsume one under the other, or just for uh, one body, say the church absorbs the other, or which is, you know, very, you know, which is invoked today Christocentrism, we would call it, where Jesus absorbs everything, even land borders. You know, he's a the great antitype to everything that was historical before. As uh, Kim Riddlebarger says, Prophecies vanish. Exactly. Old Testament prophecies vanish in the they person of Jesus. Vanish into Jesus, yeah. right? And that sounds so spiritual and, and, and wonderful, but it's back then. That's way too ethereal to what the, the the prophets and the apostles taught, and the earliest Christians saw concrete realities. So much so that Augustine, even when he pretty much invented amillennialism, borrowing from a, a hermeneutic from origin. Before that, he was as curious as anybody else, but he had a misunderstanding because he saw the concrete realities of the kingdom, the feasting, he took in a sense of like drunken orgies and partying, right? But he understood it to the point where this was concrete at least. You know, so he, was, he misunderstood what these ideas were, but he was right in the fact that this was a real kingdom that was coming of celebration, much like a Jewish wedding celebration. Um, before him, that's what they all believed. So they didn't know how exactly the church and Israel were distinct. They knew that they were distinct. Mm. It was surprising to find that that has some ancient pedigree all the way to the, the New Testament. And we can go into the preacher of rapture position, what we now call preacher of rapture position. I, I want to make that clear. We're not calling anybody within these ancient voices dispensationalists, because that would be a later term, right, uh, uh, to, to refer to these, these particular patterns of belief. We might call them proto-dispensationalists, um, germinal dispensationalists, but we're, we don't want to be um, anachronistic and apply something of a term later to earlier thought or earlier people. We're saying their ideas are what we hold to today. Um, they're maybe not as neatly packaged in a system as today, and that's where Darby really came in and kind of gave the, the uh, kick that into gear for others to start systematizing it. Um, but the ideas were certainly there, and they are ancient. So I don't know if that's non-climactic. It's not very surprising because we went in thinking this. Come to find out, uh, yes, the, the, the evidence is there. And uh, there are certainly some, as simple as a distinction between church and Israel, has been held since the beginning of the, since the close of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
How about you? Yeah. Well, you know, being editors, I mean, we, we didn't do a lot of the principal digging into all the areas in each of these centuries and for the chapters. Um, but, yeah, one after another, as we would get these chapters and we'd look at them and um, we would just be amazed at, at you know, the, the, um, the diligence of the authors. And we're so glad that we um, reached out, I think, really to the right people to put this work together. And um, e each one of them, they've, they've spotted stuff that we didn't think they would. I mean, you, you know what you're looking for. You know going into it that um, uh, there, there are these themes. That, but what's, what's actually also surprising is that none of these authors saw each other's chapters. Mm -hmm. So they couldn't reference each other. They didn't know what, what, you know, what they were looking at. Many of them are areas, you know, um, Paul Hartog is in the patristic era and, and he, he wrote it and he looked at it and he sent it off and I mean, that was it. And that's true of every single one. The one who wrote it, um, uh, uh, Mark um, Snowberger in the pre-Darby era didn't know what, what, you know, where Chuck would write in the Darby era and so forth. I mean, you know, it's just so, um, and it was a good thing, because if these guys actually knew they were on a book with each other, yeah. they might not have agreed. <laughs> right, 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 yeah. We, we've, got, we've got, you know, Daryl Bach, and then we've got um, Philip Long. Philip Long, and we've got, you know, a mid-axe dispensationalist. Mid dispensationalist, a progressive dispensationalist, and Tommy Ice would probably not be real happy about being having his name between those kinds of, you know, but um, but but nonetheless, each one reflects... But it yeah. is now. Yeah. On the book of life right here. Yeah, there we go. Just kidding. <laughs> well, yeah. thank you very much for sitting down with us and talking about this. For our listeners, Discovering Dispensationalism, SCS Press, best place to pick this up would be... I'd say Amazon is Amazon? the quickest way to get it. Yep. Okay, there we go. We recommend it to all of you. So. Thanks, you guys, for having us on. I really yeah. appreciate it, gentlemen. Yeah. Yeah. Engaging discussion. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah.